All right. Thank you. Thank you, worship team, for a, a good time of worship. And good morning, Orangewood Church, wherever you are, spread out all over the place. I'm so glad that you are with us. Uh, we've had a great time of worship today. Thank you, kids, for giving us a, 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 an update on what went on at camp. That was, that was fantastic. Well, these are unusual days. I got to also thank our tech team for uh, getting us connected and keeping us connected uh, for this time of worship today. These are unique uh, and uh, uh, and, and, and kind of interesting times as we as a congregation, along with the body of Christ all over the United States, really all over the world, are struggling with the effects of the coronavirus, as, as Erickson said to us today. And so the reality is, is uh, I know you will stay tuned uh, to the leadership of our church. Our elders and staff have done a great job thinking, what is the most loving thing that we can do uh, at this time for such a time as this. And I think they've made wise decisions for us not to meet personally, but online. Uh, but stay tuned to the communications that will take place from the elder board here and the staff uh, as to what comes out week after week after week. Well, this morning, uh, we're not going to deviate from what we have been doing in the past. We're going to continue in our study in the gospel uh, according to Mark, we've been in this study for some time, and today we're going to deal with the text that was planned for today. Uh, in many ways, this text is perfect for what we're experiencing as God's people uh, during this time, and uh, it really is very appropriate. The timing is perfect. Uh, what Jesus is doing in the text is he's giving us a history lesson. Now, the reality is, is that this was written about 30, uh, well, in the 50s AD or in the early 60s AD, but Jesus spoke these words around 33 AD, shortly before uh, he went to the cross and went through the whole Passion Week, which is coming uh, in, in front of us uh, in, in a few days. And so usually, as we think of history, we think of that which takes place in advance, and we often call that what? prophecy. Well, the reality is, is that this is a prophecy, but from where we stand right now in history, this is fulfilled prophecy as well as some history still to come. And so the title of the sermon really is the one who knows what's happening. And boy, don't we need that at this point in history to understand that as we follow Jesus, he is the one who knows what's happening, even as many people struggle with that around the world. Listen, before we look at God's holy word, as we listen to the Lord who knows what's happening, let's bow our heads and hearts in prayer briefly as we get ready to look into this text. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for your power and your goodness. As we come together as your people today, we, we really do reflect upon the reality that a mighty fortress is our God. We've sung about it. We've given you praise and honor and glory. And today we recognize that you, in fact, are the supreme king of heaven and earth. And so we raise a hallelujah to you. We honor you. We, we glorify you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet we have to confess that these are uh, challenging times. And within our church family, there are many who are struggling with fear about what is to come. 
wondering about what's happening around them and worried about the future. And so we come to you today and we remember that you are in charge, that you've always been in charge, and that there's never been a single moment in history when you haven't been the supreme king of heaven and earth. So we come to you. And Lord Jesus, you are the one who knows what's happening. You are the Lord of this church, the church worldwide. You are the Lord and Savior of our lives. And so as we look into the word today, we pray uh, that you would speak to us. We pray that you would be with us to build our faith, but also Lord, to use us in the lives of those around us who may be fearful beyond belief. May you build our faith and enable us to lovingly build the faith of others. So we pray for the one who teaches that you'd forgive him his sins and use one who is finite to communicate your infinite truth. We've come to this place today to focus upon you. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I said earlier that this is a history, that Mark chapter 13 is Jesus giving us some history. And I know when I say that immediately, there are many different responses. Uh, some of you are lovers of history. And if we were doing this live and everybody was here, I'd have make you go on record to raise your hand if you like history. Uh, and so there are some lovers of history, uh, but there are also some who were pretty lukewarm about history. You don't really like history. You, uh, you don't care if it's talked about. You know we pastors have to talk about it from time to time, but you don't care much about it. And then to keep my L imagery going, there are some of you that are loathers of history. You can't stand it. You're glad you don't have to take any history classes uh, anymore. I get that. Uh, I've always liked history, but it wasn't until just a few years ago that I realized why. I took the strength finders test. And some of you have taken the strength finders. And I found out in the top five of my strengths or my weirdnesses is the, the, the point they call context. Context is really a love of history. What does it mean? It means that we love to understand the past because it helps us to understand the present. Context, history, is understanding what happened so you can understand what's going on here and now. And as a matter of fact, that's what our text does. It helps us understand the past of what's happened, but it also helps us understand what's going on right now, as well as what's, what's coming. And so as we look into this text, Mark 13, open up your Bibles. Uh, I want you to note that really, since Jesus wrote this about 33, or this was spoken about 33 AD, uh, the reality is, is that some of this has already been fulfilled. So what we have in this text is history from Jesus to the end of times. Some of it is already fulfilled, but much of it explains the present as we look to the future. Now, for those of you who like to know these details, this passage uh, in, in Mark has been called the Olivet Discourse because it takes place on the Mount of Olives. It's also been called the Little Apocalypse because uh, it really is Jesus giving us end-time events uh, before they occur. It really is the cliff notes of the book of Revelation. So if you have read the book of Revelation and didn't understand it, this is the cliff notes of the book of Revelation that gives us really uh, a picture of what's coming. All right, so what I'm going to do, because I've been assigned the whole chapter, I'm just going to walk through it, <clears throat> and we're going to unpack 
these verses as we go. So buckle up. You ready? Here we go. All right. The first point I want you to note is that what Jesus does in verses one through four is he ignites question about history that's coming after him. What Jesus is doing is he, he sparks this controversy. And look at verse one of Mark chapter 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all of these things are about to be accomplished? Now, last week, Mark Nix did a wonderful job of uh, bringing us through uh, Mark chapter 12, reminding us that Jesus was interacting in the temple area with his disciples. And, and, and you remember that uh, Jesus could deal with the scribes. I like what Mark said uh, about uh, how Jesus was kind of like the Bruce Lee. He could handle all comers that attacked him. And that, uh, that's a good point. You can't, you can't get into a debate with Jesus and win. And so Jesus was debating the scribes. And then remember, he talked about how the, the widow came and put her half penny might into the offering plate in the temple. Well, uh, that's what was going on. And then they left that area. Jesus left the temple area and went up uh, to uh, Mount of Olives with his disciples. And on the way, one of his disciples said to him, Jesus, isn't the temple absolutely marvelous? It's interesting that, that as they came out, uh, the disciples felt like they had to say something about the temple, something that they'd seen over and over and over again. Commentators on this book of uh, Mark often say, I, I think it was probably Peter who asked Jesus about the temple. And you say, why was it Peter? Well, Peter was the one that was already always talking and always walking into a room mouth first. So it was probably Peter, but it doesn't really matter. The reality is, is that the temple that was in existence in Jesus' day was Herod's temple, the third temple, really. It was the, 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 the temple that was actually being built by Herod the Great. Herod was half Jew and half Idumean. He wasn't a full Jew, and the Jewish people really despised him. But he gained a reputation for being called Herod the Great because he was a great builder. He built Masada. He built the, the temple. He built many other sites throughout Israel. He was a great builder. He built the port at Caesarea. And if you go to Caesarea on the coast of Israel today, you can still see some of the breakwater and some of the ruins uh, of what Herod built. He was an incredible builder. And the temple at this time in history was one of the five marvels of the, of the, of the ancient world. It was absolutely stunning. In the north of Israel, they have black basalt rock. In the south of Israel, they have this incredibly brilliantly white limestone. And the temple was made of that limestone, but overlaid over much of that uh, uh, bright light limestone was gold, sheets of gold in different spaces. So as soon as the sun came up, the temple was an absolutely stunning, you could hardly look at it. 
It was absolutely beautiful. And you can imagine that even though the Jews despised Herod the Great, they had a certain patriotic pride in the temple and they loved this temple that was still in process of being built and, and was uh, still being built just before it was destroyed in 70 AD. So Jesus really throws a mind grenade when he comes out and he says, you like the temple? Yeah, in a very short time, not one stone will be left upon the other. He ignites these questions of what's coming to the disciples by saying, this temple will be destroyed. This prophecy, by the way, was very important in the early church. History records to us that uh, by 65 AD, many of the church leaders were, were taking this prophecy of Jesus, this view of the history forward, very seriously. And they actually left Jerusalem by 65 AD. Many of the Jewish Christian leaders had left Jerusalem and had gone across the Jordan River to the city of Pella uh, and were not there when the temple was destroyed by the Roman general Titus in 70 AD. And in fact, a million Jews were killed in that assault on Jerusalem when the temple was destroyed. Some of you say, well, stone upon stone, no stone will be left on, uh, uh, on top of another. If you go to Israel today and you go up to Temple Mount, you see stones on the ground and you see a wall, the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall. Well, the interesting thing is there's great controversy about that. I'm not going to go into it right now. Aren't you glad? But the reality is, is there's a great controversy as to where the temple actually was. But catch this. In 300 AD, Eusebius, the first historian of the Christian church, 300 years after plus, after the temple was destroyed, Eusebius was there and he saw the temple mount and he said it looked like an open field, that absolutely nothing was on it. And this prophecy was fulfilled. And so Jesus ignites all of these questions with the disciples and, and, and they come to him and they say, Jesus, tell us when this is going to happen. What are the signs that this is about ready to happen? And then Matthew tells us there was a third question. What is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Catch this. Uh, Mark 13 is given just before uh, Jesus goes to, into the whole time of, of his cross and crucifixion, the death, burial, and resurrection. He wants his people to know what's coming. Years ago, I read a book by Francis Schaeffer uh, entitled, He Is Here and He Is Not. Some of you have read it. You know what the end of the title is. He is here and he's not silent. Jesus wants us to know what's coming. And that's very important for us as we think about the future uh, because a lot of us ask the question, what in the world is going on? What's going on around us with the coronavirus, with all of this? Uh, the world is in turmoil. What's going on? Jesus wants us to know. And that leads us to the second point as we walk through Mark chapter 13 because Jesus then talks about the new normal post-resurrection, what it's going to be like after his death burial, and resurrection. Again, he wants us to know we're his people. 
And he doesn't want us to be afraid as we move ahead into an, what to us is an unknown future, but is not an unknown future to him. And so he tells us what the new normal, what life will be like after uh, his resurrection. Here it is, verse five. This is only gonna take a minute to read. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. But these are just the beginning of the birth pains. Catch this, verse 9. Be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to the councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you're about to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will be delivered, brother over to death, and the, and the father, his child, and children will rise up against their parents and have them put to death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. What a text of scripture. But here Jesus tells us what the new normal is going to be like. He wants us to know that Yes, he's going to the cross. Yes, he will pay for our sins. But after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, what is life going to be like? What is it? What could we expect to experience as his people living in this world? Well, we can expect all of these things. This is the new normal. And for many of you, you'd say, well, this sounds like all of history that a lot of history has been filled with wars and rumors of wars and famines and plagues and all kinds of difficulties, yes. But what's added here is that after the resurrection of Jesus, God's people will be a part uh, and a central focus of the persecution that will come simply because they believe that Jesus Christ is the fulfilled Messiah, the Son of God, and savior of sinners. And so this really is uh, uh, been a part of our, of our history, and this is our history. And it, it's interesting, in Luke 21, 11, it's, it says something here uh, that, that Mark and Matthew does not say. And it says that not only will there be wars and persecutions and difficulties, but there will also be plagues. Yeah, fascinating, isn't it? That this says that there will be plagues of many different sorts. And as a matter of fact, that's, what's, that's what we see. And that's what's happened in history. Someone has said uh, that if you look back in history, there, there have been some 300 wars in Europe in the last 300 years. In 70 AD, the Romans destroyed the temple. In 70, 79 AD, the Mount Vesuvius erupted, covered the city of Pompeii, which I got to see this past year. There, there have been earthquakes, and I'm, I'm from California, and I've seen many earthquakes. Um, add to this the persecution, but also the plagues. 
And in the history of the church, there have been many plagues. In 1347, 1348, the Black Plague, the Bubonic Plague broke out in Europe and it was devastating. Uh, and, and, and a third of Europe was affected by this. I don't say that by way to say, to scare us, but to say this is what we ought to expect. What we know is the normal of living in a broken world, awaiting the Savior to come and clean up the mess and restore it to its pristine beauty that God has ordained for us. Yet the interesting thing is during the, the Black Death, the Bionic Plague of the 1300s, is, is that God's people, as everybody kind of took off and separated, it's interesting that God's people who had a hope for the future were the ones that often stayed behind to help others. Uh, in, in the 1600s, when it resurfaced in London, it was the Christians who helped those uh, who were suffering from this. And so Jesus tells us that this is the new normal that will come uh, after the resurrection, after his ascension into heaven, and yet not to be afraid. He says, be on your guard. And then he moves on. Because, now you're going to love this. Actually, you're probably not going to like this. But the reality is he goes from a difficult statement about what is coming to, well, it's going to get even worse. Listen real quick. Mark 13, verse 14, 23. But when you see the abomination uh, standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And then he goes on talking about the challenge that it will be for us. And you can read those verses on your own um, a little bit later to see. But he says that this great tribulation will take place. And that's much of what the book of Revelation really is all about. What it helps us to understand is that there will be this great tribulation where the modern era after Jesus, uh, after Jesus' time leading into the modern era will then move into a time of great tribulation that will be worldwide. And it will be just like that time after Jesus' resurrection, but worse, but on steroids. And one of the powerful things that it says, what our Lord tells us, is that this time will be cut short for the sake of the elect. If you want to read the long version, you read the book of Revelation. But here we get the cliff notes, the, the shorter view of this great tribulation. And it says that the abomination of desolation will stand where it should not be. And it's interesting, Jesus says, let the reader understand. But this is one of the most difficult things to understand about the study of the end times in the book of, of, of Revelation and in the, in the Bible. What does it mean, the abomination of desolation? Probably somebody who represents or actually is the Antichrist figure in the book of Revelation who stands either in a rebuilt temple, we're not sure, or in, in, in a, uh, amongst the church or amongst God's people and he's attacking God's people. But this time, this, this great tribulation 
Um, Jesus ends up by saying in verse 23, he says, again, four times he says it in this text, be on your guard. I have told you all things ahead of time. And so the one who knows what's happening tells us that the temple will be destroyed. And it, in fact, was destroyed. The one who knows what's happening, our Lord Jesus Christ, tells us that the new normal after his resurrection will be that it will be a, a world filled with ups and downs, historically difficult and challenging times. But those challenging times of the church age will culminate in what's called the great tribulation to come. Fortunately, he tells us those times will be cut short for you, for me, but difficult times will come. But then the great tribulation will result in the second coming of Jesus. In Mark 13, verses 24 through 27, I love this. It says, but in those days, at the very end of the tribulation, but in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth, uh, to the, uh, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. So this is the great hope of the Christian Jesus said I, I, in John chapter 14, I'm leaving, I'm going, I'm going to go away from you, but I'll come again and bring you to myself. And this is where Jesus says that as a matter of fact, the great tribulation will culminate in the second coming of Jesus Christ, where everyone will see him. There is no silent coming of Jesus. There is a full and vibrant and alive and shouting coming of Jesus. Read Revelation if you get a chance today or at the end of Revelation and you will see that his coming will be a very, very public event. Now, I love this text. There was a bumper sticker that a friend of mine uh, sent me a long time ago talking about uh, Jesus coming. He said something like this, Jesus is coming, look busy. <laughs> like we have to be afraid about the coming of Jesus. But in reality, we don't have to be afraid at all because, because he's our Lord, because he's our Savior, because he's our King. Christians never have to be afraid of the second coming of Jesus. There is suffering in the meantime before he comes. We are all, in a sense, in the community of the world, and, and we suffer along with the world, but we don't suffer for our sins. Jesus suffered for us. But this coming of Jesus is going to be a wonderful day. And this is the blessed hope of the Christian. Young people, you got to keep in mind that the reality is, is that, is that this life is not heaven. We are not experiencing heaven on earth. This is, this is the world until Jesus comes again. And it's often difficult. And so we have to prepare. We have to be on the alert. Now, it's really interesting that Jesus wants to illustrate his second coming in verses 28 through 31 by the lesson of the fig tree. And, and, and he's not talking about Israel here. He's just giving us a simple lesson. He says, 
from the fig tree, learn its lesson as soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And so the, the enduring lesson of the fig tree is, is simply to remind us that we can know when Jesus is coming. Can we know the hour or the date? No. Uh, years ago, and many of you are too young to remember this, but years ago, actually, in 1988, there was a little booklet that came out that said, 88 reasons why Jesus is going to come back in 1988. And guess what? He didn't come back in 1988. The authors had not read that passage in the Bible that says, don't speculate exactly as to when Jesus is coming back. So what did they do? In 1989, they wrote another book. 89 reasons why Jesus is going to come back in 1989. He did not come back in 1989, but he is coming again. And all of us as Christians should have these, understand that these signs that he talks about, that even though in the new normal post-resurrection, that those are only merely the beginning, the birth pangs, they will increase and they will get worse, and yet Jesus will come again as, as this age moves into the age of the tribulation, but Jesus will come back and cut it short for the sake of the elect, and, and then he will be visible, and he will be our king forever and ever. Look, look at how Jesus summarizes and pulls together this Olivet Discourse, this message of the end times. We're almost done. Hang in there. Verses 32 through 37. Jesus says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the enduring message of the Olivet Discourse, of Jesus talking about the end times. He's answered the question, uh, when are these things going to take place? You'll know. We can have the signs. We can't know exactly, but we can see it moving toward a consummation when he comes back. But in the meantime, the enduring lesson for us as God's people is, well, let me wrap it up. Uh, Understand, number one, that life is what it is, that it's broken, that sin is in it, and that heaven is not here yet. We live between the already of Christ's first coming and the, and the not yet of his second coming, and so we do live in difficult times. And so as God's people were to stay awake, staying awake, 
to the promise of the gospel in Jesus Christ, to the reality that, that all things work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. As we move into the time of, of Passover and of celebrating the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection, we're reminded to think of the gospel. He wants us to know what's coming, but he wants us to keep the gospel in mind. That as we focus on what Jesus did for us, he accomplished our eternal salvation by grace. And that we are deeply loved and redeemed and forgiven children. We belong to him. And so as we move ahead, uh, as, as we think about even the, the current crisis of the time, the focus is for us to remember who we are in Christ, to worship, to remember uh, Romans 8, 28, that all things really do work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He's calling us to remember that we don't have to be afraid of death. And that with the hysteria that so many are experiencing around us, we want to be loving and want to be kind and we want to serve and we want to be gentle, but we also have an opportunity to have our faith in Christ deepened as we understand that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is found in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that we can give the hope of the gospel to those around us. I think 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 16, verses 13 through 14 is a great way to summarize uh, in the words of the Apostle Paul what Jesus has been saying to us in Mark chapter 13. He says this, Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. So Orangewood, as we think about uh, where we're at right now, we are called by our Lord Jesus Christ to focus upon his grace and mercy, but also on the redemption that is ours to come. So be hopeful, be alive, be on the alert, be willing to show love to those who need you to show love. And remember, he's coming again and we don't have to be afraid and we don't have to be afraid of tomorrow as we seek to live well today. You take it to heart. And so will I. And I'm praying for you. You pray for me. Now let's pray together. Our great God, we do come before you. We thank you that even in the midst of a world that is often so broken, we don't have to be afraid. That we can have hope that we can know that Jesus, you are the Lord of all and the Lord over all because you are our savior. We give you praise, we give you honor, strengthen our hearts and help us to love those who are near us and serve them in your name. As we pray these things, the strong and holy name of our risen savior, Jesus, amen.